Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. In fact, it's hard to say, I think, convincingly, that we would have um, had a much better experience in 2020 to 21 if someone else had been president. Sure, Trump made enormous numbers of mistakes, but I don't think the counterfactual that if Obama had still been president or if Hillary Clinton had been president, that we'd have had far lower mm, casualties. I don't think that's plausible because the point of failure was really further down the chain of command in the public health bureaucracy in the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention because they completely screwed up and they were supposed to be prepared. So something went wrong at the level of the bureaucracy that we need to understand. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Dr. Neil Ferguson. He's a one of my favorite historians for a long time. He's out with a brand new book, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. And this book is really amazing. He actually started writing it before COVID even happened. And why it's important is he makes the point, which is that natural disasters, pandemics, catastrophes, all these things, they only matter insofar as what they tell us about the underlying social and political order of the globe and of a society. So what did COVID actually reveal about America? Is America screwed relative to Asia? Why did they do better than we did in some ways, and we did better than they did? And are all of the myths about a rising China and all of that true? Are they really destined to take over the world? You should listen to this episode because he answers all of those questions. What's great about this is we have been focused on Dr. Ferguson's career for over a decade. That's not saying much because we're in our 20s, but it must count for something. So we not only go over Doom, but we talk about the other books that he's written in this context. Colossus, which is about the challenges of American empire. The Ascent of Money, which is about finance. The Square and the Tower, which covers social media and all the different issues we've obviously seen and covered on the show. And most importantly for this conversation around Doom, The Great Degeneration, which came out in 2012, was all about how institutional decay is going to be one of the preeminent issues of the 21st century, especially within the West. You cannot have any conversation about COVID, who's up, who's down, how society thrived or didn't thrive without talking about institutions. So we're always going to keep hitting that. And most importantly, we cover and finish this episode discussing the clearest example of what many people could see of doom in our future, which could be a war with China, how that could emerge from nowhere. Everyone who enjoyed our episodes on 2034 with Adam Westervitas and Elliot Ackerman will find that a really great bookend of that conversation. He read the book. He knows the two of them. So it's a perfect fit for all of our things. And I love Dr. Ferguson's work so much, and so does Marshall. So we created a special bookshop, not only of recommendations of his favorite sci-fi, which you're going to hear in the episode. It's all of the books that he's written that we reference. Really do recommend that you check them all out. I told him this off the air. His book on Kissinger, single best book cover in the game. That's really not a joke. Everywhere I go, um, I put it at the center of my bookshelf. Now, look, whatever you feel about Kissinger, but... It's a great photo. Uh, people always gravitate to it, to it, and they're like, wow, I love this book cover. So congratulations to him. And with that, let's get to the question and answer period. Quick 
reminder, you can send us a question by emailing us at realignmentpod at gmail.com or you can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts with a screenshot sent to us as well with your question contained within. So today's question comes from not married to any ideas. You sound like the perfect listener for this show, so thanks for writing in. I love the show. You guys have really broadened my thinking about the world we live in. I've also been listening to a guy named Peter Zihan, and I just want to know if this guy is a joke or if he's somewhat right. I'm glad that you asked us that question. Um, Actually, I'm a fan of Peter Zihan. Uh, I read his book on America, the accidental superpower, even though he's an avowed libertarian who believes in a lot of that stuff. He's very realistic about the way that geopolitics works, about how realignments happen and more, and why America did ascend to the position itself. So Peter's actually exactly somebody I'd love to talk to on this podcast at some time. Uh, Marshall, I think you read one of his books too. Yeah. I most recently read Disunited Nations, The Scramble for Power in an Ungoverned World, which came out on March 3rd, 2020. Now, Say what you want about the predictions and the analysis within the book. Any book which is framed around the idea that there is no strong world order right now, that there aren't these broad structures that could control things and direct things in the way that many of us grew up assuming would be true, that take has aged really well, no matter what you think of everything within. So I would definitely recommend you all check that book out. Really enjoyed it and it would be great for everyone to take a listen. Yeah, that's right. And as always, a special thank you to the Lincoln Network for sponsoring this podcast. Let's just get to the episode. Neil Ferguson, welcome to The Realignment. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you. Good to see you, sir. I've been a longtime fan for a long time. Well, I'm excited to to do this. uh, Yeah conversation very much so let's start there speaking of excitement so we are catching you in the second half of your podcast tour you did an incredible number of episodes i put your name into spotify and just too many popped up to do prep but you just made this joke at the start of the episode of goodfellas at the hoover institution where you were like when you do your book show this many times you start just reciting your argument in a very rote fashion so eventually the inner contrarian within yourself starts disagreeing with what you actually said so let's just start here what is the argument in the book and then what's bring out your inner contrarian and have you just argue against yourself right up top yeah, I don't usually get to that point until about week three. So we're still we're still at the point at which I believe uh, the arguments of the book, but I'll, I'll do my best. The book is a general history of disaster. And the idea was already in my mind before COVID-19 struck. Back in, in 2019, I, I was trying to persuade my editor in New York that I should write a history of the future, focusing on dystopian futures and ways in which people have thought about it future disaster, maybe because I'd spent too much time reading history and not enough time reading science fiction. So I wanted to kind of, I just wanted to kind of binge read science fiction for a bit to stretch my brain. Anyway, he was giving me funny looks over the lunch table and I didn't really get him convinced. And then a disaster happened that was straight out of some of the science fiction I'd I'd been reading. So I decided to write a general history of disaster to contextualize what was happening and make a few points. I'll, I'll maybe just focus on, on a couple. 
uh, here. One, you can't understand a contagion, and, and the biggest disasters in history have, have been pandemics. You can't understand a contagion if all you know is the pathogen, uh, the bug. You have to understand the social network it attacks. And therefore, network science is really has to be part of the, the toolkit. We had become very smart about understanding hostile pathogens in the last 100 years, especially in the very recent past, uh, but we'd become ever more vulnerable to them because of globalization for short. You know, Being more integrated as a species, uh, traveling more uh, over longer distances. And that's part of the core of the argument. The second and maybe less obvious point is that the point of failure in a disaster is not necessarily at the top, or rather you shouldn't always attach all the blame to the president or the prime minister, tempting though that is. Sure, the buck stops here, as Harry Truman said, but in fact, it's hard to say, I think convincingly, that we would have um, had a much better experience in 2020 to 21 if someone else had been president. Sure, Trump made enormous numbers of mistakes, but I don't think the counterfactual that if Obama had still been president or if Hillary Clinton had been president, that we'd have had far lower um, casualties. I don't think that's plausible because the point of failure was really further down the chain of command in the public health bureaucracy in the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention because they completely screwed up and they were supposed to be prepared. So some, something went wrong at the level of the bureaucracy that we need to understand and part of the point of the book is to show that that's often the case, that the point of failure is quite often somewhere in middle management. An idea I got from the physicist Richard Feynman, who wrote brilliantly about the space shuttle Challenger disaster. So those are the two ideas that, that immediately leap to mind when you say to me, uh, what's the book about? And uh, to be a contrarian, I, I would probably say now that we're into what may uh, of 2021, that's quite a long time after I signed off on the book, perhaps I understated the damage that populist leaders can do because we hadn't, when I finished the book, we hadn't been through the really nasty third wave in the US. Uh, we hadn't really seen the full extent of the disaster in Brazil. And, and of course, now in India, where once again, you feel like a, a populist government has really has really screwed up on a massive scale. So that's in the contrarian in me, the review writer of my own book would probably say he's he's cut a bit too much slack to those populist leaders. Hmm. I'm going to put a pin in that, but I already know half the audience is like, wait, what are the good sci fi recommendations outside of the three body problem? A longtime favorite of this show. Well, I, I certainly was struck when I started to think about the, the problem of dystopia by how many people seem only to have read George Orwell's 1984 or Aldous Huxley's and or Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And although they're wonderful books, I don't think they're actually the best framings of, of dystopia out there. And uh, and so part of what I wanted to do in my in my sci-fi binge was to read some others and see who maybe had got the future more more right. So one book that I fell in love with uh, in writing this was Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash, mm -hmm. which is a, an amazing book written in the 1990s that brilliantly foresees a world in which we spend half our lives online and it's actually better fun 
than in reality. And my nine-year-old son is there now. I mean, he actually <laughs> prefers, this is how, how, how brilliant Stevenson was. He, my son prefers being in the Roblox world and, and yeah. will vol- volunteer to have online games rather than hang out with his friends in the park. So Stevenson really saw something from a long way off that has, has arrived. And I found that book tremendous. You've, missed, you've mentioned the three-body problem, but Liu Cixin uh, wrote uh, more than just that one book because it's part of a trilogy. Everybody should read uh, The Dark Forest, which is the second volume. And, and, and that book became a big part of how I was thinking about the US-China relationship in writing the, the later parts of the book. I could go on and on. The, the whole last chapter or conclusion is a kind of a tour through books that I thought were cool when I was when I was writing this, um, Margaret Atwood's uh, fantastic uh, trilogy about a post-pandemic world, mm-hmm. uh, or, uh, Oryx and Crake is fantastic. I, I'm, I'll stop there for fear of <laughs> boring the non-sci-fi people, because it turns out lots of people yeah. are very not not into sci-fi. It's okay. Uh, and, yeah, yeah, I don't care. No, I guarantee you, there's enough. Um, we're going to have an entire list of uh, Professor Ferguson's recommendations, which everybody can check out. But something that you cited actually around the top of the book, I was I loved it. Is Richard Evans. He's one of my favorite historians, especially about the Third Reich. And he was talking about, and I have it written down here, about the Hamburg cholera epidemic of 1892. And it taught that mortality caused by a deadly pathogen is a reflection of the social and political order that it attacks. It's a common theme throughout the book where a volcano eruption only matters because of the people and the societal order that it affects, like with Pompeii. Same thing with an earthquake. Earthquake doesn't matter if nobody lives there. So from that perspective, let's actually just go around the world and apply the COVID principle to, let's say, with the U.S. You were talking uh, before by underestimating populism, and I don't want to get there. But overall, how would you rate what the deadly pathogen of COVID revealed about the societal, social political order of the United States. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Richard Evans because it's a sign of of my uh, extreme nobility of spirit that I should have praised uh, Richard Evans's book as he's been uh, mean about most everything I've done for years and <laughs> a deeply hostile figure. Um, in in the British historical profession, why I had to move here actually to to oh, get away from Richard. <laughs> I didn't who... even know about this beef. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is about this is about your your World War One stuff. I'm guessing. Yeah, I knew. I already knew what it was about. Actually, yeah. it was it was really when I started to do do counterfactuals that that he he got his his uh, mm. his historical sniper gun out. Uh, but but actually, it's political because Richard thinks you shouldn't have conservative historians anywhere and decided early on that I was one of those. At any event, the, the, the cholera book, Death in Hamburg, is a brilliant book and his best book, I think. And it, it's a wonderful uh, illustration of the general point that uh, it takes more than a pathogen to cause uh, a disastrous epidemic. By that point in European history, cholera had more or less been eradicated in most big cities. But Hamburg lagged way behind in terms of sanitation, as evidence shows, because the property owners who were pretty powerful politically were just able to resist cleaning up the slums and cleaning up the sanitation system. And, and it took a disastrous epidemic of cholera uh, to change that. And he also shows that the incidence of, of mortality is just hugely skewed by income and wealth. So the, the poor just die like flies and the relatively wealthy people in the city 
uh, uh, largely avoid the disaster. So I, I was influenced by that book as a young graduate student. It, it figures in my first book, which was also set in Hamburg. The general insights, I don't think I'd fully grasped until many years later, namely that the idea that there's a natural disaster on one side and a man-made disaster on the other side, and they're quite different, that idea is wrong. All disasters are politically constructed. And the way of illustrating that with the pandemic is that Taiwan, which is right next to where this thing began in uh, mainland China, by doing everything that we failed to do, namely rapidly ramping up testing, then creating a system of contact tracing on smartphones, and then using that to, to isolate the infected or suspected infected, Taiwan managed to avoid disaster. Only 12 or 13 people have died of COVID-19 in Taiwan in the entire pandemic. And uh, they didn't have to do lockdowns. So their economy was far less disrupted by this experience. That tells you that there was a way of doing this right. And, and South Korea also pretty much did the same. Somewhat more people died, but still a, a rounding error by comparison with the US where we're fast approaching 600,000 deaths, maybe higher IHME just revised upwards right. it, its estimates for deaths. But at any event, I mean, that shows you that it didn't need to be this bad. So the question then becomes, well, why exactly was it this bad? Uh, and the simple answer, which I still think is too simple, was, well, Donald Trump's an imbecile. And if we'd not had an imbecile as president, it would all have been different. But there, there's a problem with that argument that's immediately obvious. Not every country that had high excess mortality had an imbecile or a populist uh, in charge at the top. And in fact, take Belgium. Belgium had worse excess mortality in relative terms than the US, but there's not a populist to be found. The woman who was prime minister when the pandemic was at its worst was a liberal. And I could go on. It, it's pretty hard to get a simple correlation between uh, populist presidents or prime ministers and excess mortality. Uh, and that means that one has to sort of ask oneself a question which is somewhat different, namely, why were public health bureaucracies in most Western countries, in most democracies, so caught off guard by this when on paper they were really well prepared? And this mm. is a critical point. In 2019, when you asked which countries are best prepared for a pandemic, the US and the UK came near the top of the rankings. And on paper, they really were very well prepared. And I've plowed through the multi-page pandemic preparedness plans that multiple government agencies produced. And it's all very impressive. Uh, multiple PowerPoint decks to go with these plans. It's just that when a pandemic happened, none of it worked. And I think that's, that's the thing we have to look much more closely at if we're to understand what went wrong last year. If we tell ourselves, as Jim Fallows did in his Atlantic piece, uh, actually, it was all Trump's fault. And now that he's gone, no bad things will happen again. The next emergency is going to be just as bad. The next right. disaster, whatever it is, will get screwed up by another part of the bureaucracy, probably in a rather similar way. Something I'm really fascinated by, especially in the American context, is a tension between some of the recommendations you give and your diagnosis. So, for example, when you speak, you've spoken about decentralization as a key factor in a proper response to this entire dynamic. But if you look at 
Taiwan. That's the definition of centralization. Centralized apps, a very strong state. The U.S. has 50 different state responses, some good, some bad, some are blue, some are red, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So can you talk about, if you're the type of person who wants a decentralized response, can you just speak about that idea within this context? I wonder if it's right to describe Taiwan as, as centralized. It seems to me the People's Republic of China gives you the centralized response, which is that the one-party state screws it up to begin with because they really don't want to acknowledge that there's a problem. So they kind of rerun the script of Chernobyl only with a, a pandemic. And then once they've realized that they can no longer cover it up, then they crack, crack down and impose draconian restrictions on the entire country. And that all reflects the, the power of, of Xi Jinping and the people at the top of the Communist Party. Taiwan's different. I, I'd never visited Taiwan until just before the pandemic. And I spent some time there and was really fascinated by the way the government there has been thinking seriously about how to use technology in ways that empower citizens rather than the state. Audrey Tang is kind of the hero of doom. She's the, the digital minister who came from the sort of cyberpunk world into government with a mandate to use technology to empower citizens. And the most interesting conversations I've had about issues like data privacy were in Taiwan with people working in the government or in the private sector to address the issue of how do you make sure that a contact tracing app, which clearly needs to work on a national level, doesn't become a weapon for Big Brother. So they've really thought that through and we haven't. So I think the answer to the question is, when a crisis strikes, clearly some things need to be done centrally. You, you've got to control, for example, flows of passengers from areas where the virus is rife. And we totally failed to do that. And when Trump tried to do it, he was slammed in the liberal media uh, because it was set, said to be a, a racist move. It was actually the right move, but it was too late and it wasn't comprehensive enough. In the same way, if you're going to do contact tracing, you can't do it at a state level. It has to be at a national level. And I think it's a good question why we didn't do that, because we could have done. And I think we could have done it without creating, you know, the surveillance state of Orwell's nightmares, because they did that successfully in, in Taiwan and in South Korea. So why did the big tech companies, which certainly could have made contact tracing possible, decide not to? That's one of the little questions that I slip into the later part of Doom, because it's, it's an obvious sin of omission, just like we failed to do testing rapidly and on uh, at scale mm -hmm. the answer to that question is that cdc centralized control of testing and wouldn't let other people do their own testing kits because you could figure out how to test for covid pretty quickly once the, the the virus had been sequenced so what was going on there well the answer is that cdc said first of all no you can't do your own tests we're going to control this and then the test that they came up with didn't work which was a kind of epic fail of centralization. So I think some things like contact tracing clearly won't work if they're not done at a national level. And the challenge is to do it without creating the big brother surveillance state. Other things like testing should have been decentralized. Mm -hmm. CDC should have said, look, here's what it should, here's how the test should work. Get on with it. Do as much as you can. The Stanford campus has the resources to do 
uh, testing for a new virus, if anywhere does. But I was wandering around here in February and into March saying, can anyone test to see if I have this thing? And the answer was no, nobody could, even here. So I, I do think there's a sort of balance to be struck between that which is best done at, at a national level, or for that matter, an international level, and that which is best done in a decentralized way. My general view is that the world, particularly the world that we now exist in with the technology at our disposal, needs to resist centralization as much as it possibly can, because we do not want to end up in uh, the Orwellian dystopia. Uh, and, and therefore, we need to be very, very careful about what we do uh, online. But we've ended up with enormous central control and ownership of data uh, in this country and indeed worldwide. And yet we did not leverage that. You know, mm -hmm. Facebook and Apple and, and Google could easily have graphed your social network, my social network, and warn people if we got infected, hey, uh, you've been in touch with an infected person, but we chose not to do that. And that was that was odd, really. We can't blame that on Trump. That was a decision the tech companies took. So this is where I'll be a contrarian and say, this is probably something you could blame on Trump in the sense that Trump, especially post-March, turned this into a culture war issue. So for example, and you saw this play out during the vaccine passport debate, which I don't really have an opinion on, but you see... Republicans in red states saying we are not going to allow vaccine passports. And I could very easily see a world where in May, June, July, when things are starting to reopen again before the summer surge happens, you see big tech is coming in. It's allied with the state. You're placing tech in the private sector in a separate category of incentivization. But I just see, and this relates to you know your, your work of obviously Square in the Tower, there's just a huge portion of, frankly, this audience, but also this the country that sees the tech company as a state in of itself. So I'm just curious how you think it would have been possible to have a good faith argument about contact tracing in a way that didn't end up in the same place as the vaccine passports debate two months ago. There was an opportunity early on, I mean, I'm talking January, February 2020, uh, to get this right by looking at what was happening in Taiwan and South Korea and, and trying to go there. I think the, the chances of doing it just faded rapidly when those months passed. Yeah. And uh, by the time you got into mid-March, frankly, there was so much community spread that it would probably have been overwhelmingly difficult to get contract tracing to work. I mean, we'd, we'd missed the opportunity. Remember that great Larry Brilliant line, Larry Brilliant, the epidemiologist, going all the way back to 2005. What's the key lesson of, of, of the history of pandemics? Early detection and early action. And once we missed that opportunity, then I think we entered a very strange domain of politicization. Remember, the subtitle of the book is The Politics of Catastrophe. The politics by March were interesting because clearly the people advising Trump, like Larry Kudlow, for example, feared that if they created the economy to try to contain the spread of the virus, they would lose the election. And so the, the advice that they gave him was, let's just uh, hope it's no worse than the seasonal influenza, don't don't go down the lockdown road. Democrats in key states, particularly New York, but also California, they went in the opposite direction, which was to embrace lockdowns, uh, follow a lot of European governments, issue shelter in place orders. And, and from that moment onwards, I think policy became politicized 
because Republicans started to identify uh, the strategy of let's let it rip, herd immunity, as somehow aligned with a libertarian view of, of the world. And, and Democrats thought that locking down was kind of a sign of liberal virtue. This was kind of absurd, because if you look back on American history in previous emergencies, that didn't happen. There was very little politicization uh, of these issues in the 1950s when there was plenty more infectious disease to deal with. But we're we're compulsively political about everything in the United States today. Uh, Masks became politicized. Then you had the politicization of remedies, uh, hydroxychloroquine, and finally, of course, the politicization of vaccines. I think the way in which everything has become a partisan issue in the domain of public health illustrates perfectly the theme of the book. The disasters are not kind of made by nature. We have to come along and politically screw them up to get excess mortality well north now of, of half a million. And I'm not sure that it would have been radically different with a different president. And the reason I think that is that we know, I mean, Ron Klain has admitted this, and he's Joe Biden's chief of staff. If the 2009 swine flu had been as bad a virus as SARS-CoV-2, then there were lots of people who would have died under Barack Obama. I mean, it wasn't like they would have been able to stop that virus spreading. It spread really rapidly. In some ways, uh, it's it got to more people faster than than SARS-CoV-2. If it had been a really deadly virus, we, we would have had excess mortality in 2009. And remember also that under the Obama administration, we did have an epidemic that got worse each year of that presidency, namely the opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, we tend to think as if that's a different kind of problem from, from COVID. Nobody, I've never read an article that blames Obama for the very large number of deaths from opioids that happened on his watch, even although it was a uniquely American disaster, it wasn't happening in Europe, and it got worse every single year of his presidency. He completely failed to fix that problem. But he never put himself front and center, and that was really Trump's fatal mistake, to decide to make himself the central actor in the drama. If he'd been smart, he would have punted it to Pence and left it to Pence. But Trump couldn't resist, like the moth to the bright light, the prospect of being center stage in this crisis. And that, I think, is why he, he lost uh, in November. Because by putting himself at the center and then screwing it up, he really threw away the quite good chance that he had prior to that point of getting a second term. Yeah, and people should remember, he still almost won. <laughs> I think that's the craziest part about it all. Another thing I really appreciate about your book is a debunking kind of of cyclical theories of history. Um, and I find these really attractive. You know, everybody's got the Mark Twain tweet, you know, or the Mark Twain thing, like history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And you're like, man, but there's all these patterns. And this one guy did this analysis and youth bulges. I remember the youth bulge discourse around the Arab Spring so well. Um, yeah. At the same time, the Twitter and the free speech, and it all just ended up being completely wrong, which is <laughs> fascinating to me. So other why podcast. Do, yeah, that's a whole other <laughs> Why do you think... A, that these are so attractive to like modern discourse, but ultimately like why why do most of these fail just based on the complexity of the world? Well, we're very strongly attracted to cyclical theories of history since the ancients. It's, it's a very attractive idea that somehow history should behave as we individual humans do 
that we should sort of rise from childhood and 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 reach a sort of prime of life. You're in it. I'm past it. And then we then we decline and and fall. And and we just want history to do that because then we can get a handle on it and it'll be predictable. And then we can and we can invest with the Kondratiev cycle. You know that. That, that's very appealing. You can see why it appeals to to finance people. Look at Ray Dalio, who's got this whole cyclical theory of history that he's rolling out now because you know he's made enough money that he can he can focus on on writing financial history for fun. This is a very compelling way to think about the world, and it's attracted some tremendously serious scholars as well as amateurs like like Dalio. Peter Turchin is somebody whose work I really respect and find fascinating. And I think Boom provides the best synthesis digest overview of Turchin's contribution to date. Um, and, and I hope it'll introduce people to his work. But in the final analysis, even although I'm impressed by what he's trying to do, I find it difficult to believe that any cyclical theory of history can work because there's so much randomly distributed disaster. And how can, how can a, a cyclical theory accommodate the way in which wars happen, completely randomly distributed, the ways in which the big disasters, wars and, and revolutions and, and pandemics and massive volcanic eruptions, the way those things happen, just those things defy any cyclical model. And they're so powerful, they're so dominant in the way that they intrude on human affairs. The, in my sense, people are always torturing the data to get that chart they want. And if you want to see data tortured, take a look at Dalio's charts. I mean, they, 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 the Bridgewater folks are very good at making history look like it's a series of, of leverage cycles. But I am here to tell you that it's it's not true. It's just not the way it works. <laughs> and we should we're looking to book him when his, when his yeah, book comes out. So let's, so, so, uh, Ray, if you're listening, please still come on the show. Yeah, <laughs> well, I don't want to, I don't want to, dis, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful. I think it's impressive when any master of the universe, you know, turns around and says, and now my wisdom is going to be applied to history or just as George Soros applied it to philosophy. But there is a, there is a danger here that that we are kind of mesmerized by, you know, twenty years of super high returns um, into thinking that this is actually the key to to history. I I sense that part of the point of writing Doom was to set out my very different view of the past, which I've been trying to communicate since virtual history back in the late nineteen nineties. The past is this messy place where there's lots of yeah. chaos and complexity and contingency. And it's better to recognize that than to, to tell yourself a story about historical cycles that is, is ultimately going to disappoint you. Right. And we have to ask this one because, first of all, the name of our podcast is literally in it. And we get the question all the time. And I'm sure you even know about William Strauss and Neil Howe the fourth turning, generational realignments every to 80, 90 years. Um, it predicted the financial crisis. Marshall, you're, you actually read it. So isn't there some grandfather figure which well, is supposed be, to- Let's be precise. I did, I did not read it. I purchased okay, okay. it for the bookshelf to signal that yeah, I could have read it. But uh, <laughs> as the person- That's what books are for. Yeah, that's what books are for, ultimately. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah can you just- Because we just get this- We get this- I don't know what Question happened, constant. but over the past yeah. year- YouTube podcasting has really found a second, third win there. So I'd just love for you to respond and contextualize what you wrote about the book there. Well, I think this is one of these examples of, of a 
theory that refuses to die. Maybe there is reincarnation for <laughs> theories, if not for people. So th this is a, an idea that has been uh, around for a long time. I mean, actually, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. was doing cyclical generational theories of American history before I was born. And, and when Strauss and Howe came up with their cycle of, of, of generations, my immediate thought was um, the Spengler estate should be suing for copyright because the, the turnings are straight out of Oswald Spengler, uh, particularly this attempt to associate the, the cycles with seasons. This is what I mean about us wanting history to be like that thing which is familiar, just as a human life is cyclical, so are the seasons. And you know, I, I, I can be confident that it's gonna be warmer in California uh, in a couple of months, and then it'll eventually cool down after, of course, the place has burst into flames for welfare season. But but to believe that human history follows the same pattern as the seasons, which Spengler did and, and now Strauss and, and how want us to believe, is just to kind of, it's just to do a violence to the way that the past really works. And when you get this sort of claim that, well, it predicted the financial crisis and the fourth turning is going to culminate with some great generational uh, handoff from baby boomers to millennials. For me, this is just a kind of act of, of violence against the complexity of, of the past. In my view, the, the Turchin story, he predicted there would be a spike of violence in, in 2020. And that, of course, looks great now. But I mean, it took a pandemic yeah. to produce that great escalation in, in the summer of last year. And the pandemic definitely wasn't part of Turchin's model. It's That's the kind of deus ex machina, the, the, the thing, the exogenous shock that gets him gets him his his prediction to come true. So I'm, you know, I'm inclined to think that people will always fall for this stuff because they want the past and therefore also the future to be a lot more predictable than it really is. And I'm just, I'm just the bearer of bad news. There's a ton of randomness in the historical process. Most of the things that we study in history, you know, the, the great empires and uh, and and great powers are are complex systems and and they behave in in the way that complexity theory predicts. They kind of can look as if they're in equilibrium for quite long times, and then this relatively small perturbation comes along, and the whole thing can fall apart because it's actually not been in equilibrium at all. It's been on the edge of chaos. This is much less comforting. Uh, as a way of thinking about the world. The, the bad news is there's tons of uncertainty and not much calculable risk. And I think for most people, that's just hard to handle. So they they wait for the next cyclical theory to come along and, and get on board, hoping to get a greater amount of certainty than I'm afraid we're entitled to. And I think the topic of history is a good pivot to our second half here around your work as a historian. And this was, I'm just pretty much reading from your book, jacket and the press clipping that was given to us with it, which is, and this is by the way, one of, you should really compliment um, the folks at your publisher. They actually gave us a really good summation, yeah. one of the better ones I've seen in terms of um, your work is really focused on the story of America over 20 years in historical context. So I'd actually just like to go through that because it hits a lot of the themes mm -hmm. we cover here. So for example, let's start with Colossus, right? I think 2003, 2004, 
we're in elementary school, so we obviously didn't read it when it came out. Um, so it reads a bit like a relic of a time when America's debating empire and you're invading Iraq and you're making a new reality and all these references that Gen Z listeners won't get. But Rui did mean something in the early 2000s. Can you just talk, talk about like the topic of imperial, like of imperial hubris and the choices that are being faced? Because a lot of people are putting COVID into a narrative of this is just like that peak of America and America's inability to respond in comparison to Asia and China, et cetera. I just love for you to like contextualize what you're really arguing there in today's context. Well, the reason that that literature that you got from the publisher is so good is that I wrote it and I'm kind of a <laughs> compulsive person who rewrites all the publicity stuff and the jacket flab. And I'd, I'd write the blurbs if I, if I was able to. To, to, to be serious, I came to this country 2002 and began teaching at NYU, having been working on a, a book about the British Empire. And a lot of the work that I'd done up until that point led me to the question, is the United States the heir of the British Empire? And can it succeed in that, in that undertaking? The conclusion of the book Empire, which was largely done while I was still at Oxford, is that the US can't succeed. And, and Colossus was written as the Iraq invasion was happening in, in a kind of rush to try to, to tease out that argument. The argument of the book, which was anticipated in Empire, is that there are three deficits that make the American empire a likely-to-fail project compared with its British predecessor. Uh, th there's a manpower deficit because Americans don't really want to go and spend their lives in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, whereas in the 18th and 19th century, a surprising number of, of British uh, people, mostly men, were willing to go and spend their lives governing the Punjab or wherever it happened to be. So there was a manpower deficit. Secondly, there's a fiscal deficit. In order to do this kind of thing, you really do have to spend quite a lot of money on it. And if you're already running a structural deficit uh, because of your domestic programs, your aging population, entitlements, and so forth, then it's not likely that the resources will be there to make a long-term success of, of imperial enterprises. And, and then finally, and critically, the attention deficit seemed to me to be the obvious weakness and likely the most important one. American voters are very up for it when they're in retaliation mode, but it doesn't last. And so the problem of, of each intervention in American history is, is, is that it's relatively short-lived. Uh, and each time somehow the, the half-life of public attention is, is shorter. And so I, th I thought right from the get-go, and this was an argument that I remember making in a magazine article in the New York Times, I knew that this was not going to work out. Um, and and it, it meant that the book <laughs> was a much more pessimistic book than anybody really wanted to read. I'll give you an illustration of this. I wanted to call it Blind Colossus. That was my original title. And the publishers in you are like, eh, do you really want to go there? Um, and the original subtitle was The Decline uh, and fall of American empire, but the hardback didn't have that subtitle. I think it was just the price of American empire because the uh -huh. publishers were nervous that I was going to be on the wrong side of the post 9-11 mood. But the book is really quite a pessimistic book. And although I didn't get everything right, 
uh, I think it actually reads quite well today in the sense that it, it correctly foresees that the US will not be able to make a success of its undertakings in Iraq and Afghanistan, that the neoconservatives are kind of smoking weed in thinking that they were building an empire. And that ultimately domestic constraints, particularly fiscal constraints and, and, and politics broadly defined, would bring the whole thing to a kind of uh, ignominious end. And that's that's really where, where we are. It's shocking exactly. to think that you guys were in yeah. school when I was writing this, but there it is. Well, and, and quick thing, because this is the fascinating part, because the politics, speaking of neoconservatives, have shifted a lot. Because once again, younger listeners, Max Boot of, of Never Trump fame back then, he is writing, yeah, we're an empire and that's probably a good thing. This is You, you really were responding to this weird post 9-11 moment where a lot of folks on the neoconservative right and then a lot of center left people who I think were really cowed by 9-11, so like the Peter Beinarts of the world before they went far left uh, into basically supporting these. It's just like a fascinating debate that makes no sense in today's context that you'd actually have a real like, yeah, like that's it in the pages of foreign affairs. Yeah, it's nuts. And you know, I'm also thinking about it, which is maybe this was just your perspective as an outsider. Because when you're when you're talking, it strikes me you're like, yeah, that's obviously correct. Like we said, we were literally, I think it was in fifth grade um, during the invasion yeah. of Iraq. But you're like, you know, you read the history of the British Empire, like you said, like the gentleman's task of like going to Afghanistan or India, or like this is a big Churchill thing. And there was also that like rock solid. Um, that rock solid, I guess more like working class support of the empire in Britain, which was sustained. And that's something I found fascinating while reading the history of the empire is like the governments will change, but nobody screws with the empire because the people love it. And that's just not the case here whatsoever for a variety of reasons. Given like all of that, another thing I think is, you know, connecting, building that on top of that is the great degeneration and talking about bureaucratic sclerosis, which I think is a decent bridge to the CDC and the yeah. HHS failures that you talked about there. Do you think that our sclerotic bureaucratic state is endemic, uh, is part of the declining empire? I mean, maybe even in the British context, is it the cause of our downfall, the cause of our problems with COVID and more? Just just contextualize that in this arc of your own like writing and thinking about this. Yeah, it's worth noting that I went from working on those issues of of empire to write a book about financial crises, That's the essence of money, right. and and that was a book that grew out of my observation in around two thousand six that the, the the financial system was going to blow up, and I was doing quite a bit of journalism, but in the UK, so not many people saw it here arguing that the financial system was heading for a major crisis, a big one. And so feeling that that was coming, I thought I should write a book that would explain to people where the financial system itself came from and why it was capable of generating a huge blow up. And The Ascent of Money was a book written in anticipation of a crisis. And the crisis then started to happen as the book was kind of going through the, the galleys stage. And it, it came out just before Lehman Brothers blew up. Now, what's interesting about that is that on paper, there was a great deal of regulation of the financial system. Banks were, in fact, highly regulated, the most regulated parts of the financial system. There'd been some deregulation, sure, uh, since the 1980s. But what's really interesting to me about 2008 is that 
there's lots of regulation of the thing that was the biggest vulnerability, which was bank capital adequacy. And I must say, I'm very reminded of that when I look at all the preparations for pandemics that existed on paper prior to 2020, it just didn't yeah. work when, when the crisis came. So I think the great degeneration makes an argument about what's wrong with uh, the United States that, that logically followed from much that was in Colossus. But the financial crisis was a really important learning experience for me because it was then that I realized that you could have great complexity in regulation and apparent foresightedness, but in reality, be kidding yourself about how ready you really were. So that, that gave rise to the observation that there's a problem of, of regulation, a kind of dysfunctional character to bureaucracy, the administrative state in the phrase that Chris DeMuth coined, that is, is a pathology to be found in pretty much every domain where the federal government is active. And if the military had turned out to be quite bad at the thing they set out to do in 2003, so were the financial regulators quite bad at the thing they were supposed to do in 2008. And guess what? The public health bureaucracy turned out to be quite bad at their one job. So I think the general argument in Great Degeneration was, we have a problem, it's not the problem that we think we have. Uh, just in the same way this book had four parts to it, we, we knew that there was a fiscal problem uh, and that it had generational implications. That was already obvious when I was writing The Great Degeneration. But I think even I underestimated the extent to which generational conflict would become so pronounced in the United States that it would actually become the, the basis for a new political alignment, which I think has pretty much happened. Mm. The other thing that the great degeneration talks about are the way the rule of law doesn't really work anymore, which I think is really important. Mm. And finally, um, there's the argument about education. I mean, I look at that book and I think, yeah, I think those are the pathologies of modern America. How weird that we don't really have a political system that can deliver solutions. We have a political system that can deliver fake solutions for these problems, but not one that can deliver real solutions. You know, if you'd read the fourth turning, you would have anticipated the generational <laughs> alignment to tie everything back together. I'm very proud of that. No, so um, for our last bit here, I want to put two of your books together because at the start, they're not related, but I think today, in today's context, they are related. So obviously, 2000s, a lot of work around World War One. so pity of war, um, war of the world. And then in 2012-13, you do civilization, the West and the rest. And I think these two fit together because people are weirdly obsessed um, with World War One right now. Not weirdly, but if you look at the books that we tend to show at our shop, when it comes to heavier histories, they are those World War One histories. And our thesis around this is the metaphor there is just so obvious. There's this world order that is clearly declining. Something is clearly ending. Things are rising. China is rising. So you could then add to the World War One stuff, the civilizational context, because obviously when you have Germany challenging Great Britain, it's within the broader Anglo-Saxon context. I hope that wasn't racist for saying that there. Um, but on a broader level... Um, with the US and China, there's a different civilizational part. So I'd just love for you to just give us like your thoughts on that, especially in the context coming out of COVID, because this is how most people are thinking of it. Well, I remember as I was writing Colossus, adding a chapter about the, the rise of China towards the end. 
Uh, and when you think back to that time, 2003, 2004, economically, China still had a long way to go. And it was really only subsequently that we saw this tremendous catching up. It was after China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001 that you really got this acceleration uh, and narrowing of the gap. So I became preoccupied with the Chinese challenge around that time. I started to visit China. Uh, I became a visiting professor at Tsinghua to kind of make sure that I went and educated myself uh, and made civilization partly to answer the question, is it over, that's to say, the primacy of the West that came out of the great divergence, to use Ken Pomerantz's famous phrase, are we actually witnessing its end? So the argument was there were six things that gave Western civilization broadly defined an edge. And for much of the period from around the 1600s into about the mid 20th century, these things that I identified as the killer applications, things like the idea of, of competition, uh, the, the notion of the rule of law based on private property rights, the scientific revolution, the great advances in medical science, the consumer society and the work ethic, those things which were clearly unrelated to race, though people 100 years ago thought there must be some racial uh, basis for this advantage. These institutions and ideas were not really widely adopted except by Japan uh, in the 20th century. Uh, and it was only really quite recently that China and then India started to download the killer apps. It was actually open source software, crucially. Uh, and once uh, any society adopts these ideas and institutions, it grows. It doesn't really matter what color people's skin is and in what religion they, they've grown up believing. This stuff works in any setting. That was, that was the argument of civilization. And I think China has shown that with at least some of those killer apps, maybe four out of the six, it can catch up with the United States in terms of growth. And that's what's been happening. It's never going to download the rule of law in, in the way that we understand it. Uh, and it's certainly not going to download political competition, but it could do all the rest. So where are we now? I think we're in Cold War II. I think it began hmm. at least three years ago. Most intellectuals in the United States are in denial about this still because they really quite like globalization and they love phrases like rules-based international order or liberal international order. And they still kind of are attached to the notion that China isn't a totalitarian state. So it's quite hard for me to persuade people of the staringly obvious reality that we're in Cold War II. It began some time ago. And this, this Cold War is in some ways a harder one to win because the Chinese are economically in a much stronger position than the Soviets ever were. But the way that doom ends as a book is by saying the near-term danger we face um, is actually this, because if we end up escalating the way the first Cold War did, and remember it became a hot war in 1950 uh, over Korea, we'll, we'll be in a big war, a much bigger war than Iraq or Afghanistan ever were. And that's a, I think that's a bigger risk than most people fully can, can imagine. Uh, and, and so part of what I'm trying to do is just make people see this is what the early Cold War felt like. When George Orwell first used the term Cold War, which was in 1945, most Americans were quite dismissive, thinking that the relationship with Stalin that there had been during World War II would continue. It wasn't really until 1950 when the North Koreans actually invade South Korea at Stalin's orders that the penny drops, that this is for real. And I think we're going to relive that experience, only this time it'll be Taiwan, mm -hmm. not, not Korea.
Yeah, oh. and, and speaking of the the response, I'm fascinated by how China, at least the CCP, handled the past four years. So you saw the opening. I feel like from a political perspective, morality aside, the whole idea of in 2017, you're at Davos, China is the defender of that world order, China is focusing on – all the all – the, there's just like this clear lining up of – and you see the way that the Germans in many ways there, – there was a real audience for the idea that the US is this um, side rogue regime and that China would create something new. And then from 17 on, I don't know what happened. You just saw, obviously, um, the disaster with the Uyghurs. You saw the moves on Hong Kong. You saw the like, really extreme um, crackdowns. What What do you think happened here that caused us to really pivot? Because like, I think the one – we should say something positive about the U.S. Um, the one thing – you might not be convincing U.S. intellectuals that there is this serious issue with China, but the public – and mm -hmm. voters in the Democratic and Republican parties have switched position, have switched in a more unified direction on this. So, just what happened uh, during this period? I think the scales fell from people's eyes because Xi Jinping hadn't really been that secretive about his ambitions, about the increasingly ideological direction he wanted to go in, about the ambitions that he had uh, in the South China Sea, about the ultimate goal of taking Taiwan back into the fold on Hong Kong. Gradually, I think, although the elites were still in love with what I called Chimerica back in 2007, ordinary people were, were, were understanding that Trump had a point. And Trump's historical significance is actually that he changed the direction of travel on China yes. and created a bipartisan consensus that China was the next big challenge. And eventually the elites regarded this as a fight they'd lost. So they all jumped on board. And we and we got into a far more cold cold war state of mind than than Trump himself had intended, because Trump was basically pursuing his own protectionist agenda. But it morphed from a trade war into a tech war and then into a cold war in the course of time, because people in the administration like Pence and Pompeo wanted to go much beyond tariffs, understanding rightly that tariffs were a futile endeavor. Uh, but if you were going to contain China, you would have to contain it. Uh, by containing its technological catch-up strategy. So the strategy morphed, but Trump, I think, was the catalyst for this shift. What's really fascinating about 2020 is that if you were still in doubt about the malignant character of the Chinese regime, they did everything to, re to, to change your mind. First, they did this Chernobyl-like bungled cover-up of the initial outbreak in Wuhan. Uh, and if you'd watched Chernobyl, you were you were ready for what was going to happen because it was the same story of local officials trying to sh cover up the disaster, and then eventually the central party having to admit that it it couldn't it couldn't cover it up. So that that was kind of I think a moment of truth. And the other moment of truth was when they embarked on this crazy wolf warrior diplomacy strategy of trying to change the narrative by claiming that, in fact, the virus had originated in the United States, which nobody, nobody believes. Um, and, and you see, if you look at surveys, it's not just that American opinion moved against the Chinese government significantly. So did opinion in most developed countries. And I think if you had equivalent data for India, it would probably be even more pronounced. So the world has kind of come round to what seemed like a kind of somewhat crazy position when Trump articulated it at the beginning of his campaign. Now it's consensus. And it's one of the few bipartisan issues 
out there. And this creates a dangerous moment because the Chinese have persuaded themselves that we're weak and finished. And that ultimately what happened last year with COVID and with the election confirms that we're done. Uh, and this is their moment. So there's a kind of hubris in Beijing, which is really quite, quite worrying to me, because this is, to bring us back to 1914, the mistake that Germany made. The Germans thought the future is ours. The Brits are over the hill. Uh, we don't need to take the Americans too seriously. And so we can risk a major uh, power grab in 1914. And British policy failed to deter that. But then Britain intervened, and it turned out that actually Germany couldn't defeat Britain, especially if Britain could mobilize the United States. And this all happened again in the 1930s. The exact same thing happened. If there's one thing that worries me about 21st century geopolitics, it's that we're going to replay the tape. We'll fail to deter China. Xi Jinping will conclude that he can take Taiwan without really much of a fight. And then he'll be uh, rather appalled to realize that, in fact, we're willing to fight for it. Or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe in the end, we'll just fold. But that's the it's, big geopolitical question. It is. You know, when you're talking and you're articulating the Chinese case, I can hear like the Kaiser and and like the journal, German general staff. Like you can hear them being like, oh, they're not going to do it. They're finished. They're weak. You know, they're a naval power. What do they know about this? And it is exactly, I saw that behavior at that most recent, um, it was an Alaska summit where the Chinese just acted um, in a ridiculous fashion um, in the way that they were behaving both on our soil towards Blinken. Of course, he was kind of taken aback. I guess within all of this, this is something we've talked a lot about here on the show, Admiral Stavridis and Elliot Ackerman in their book, 2034. Do you think that the Thucydides trap applies here and just you know for laying it out for the audience the Thucydides trap is you know rising power like the World War one thesis has two rising powers they're destined for war you're talking about Taiwan it's fascinating because I think this quote was reported by a friend of our show Josh Rogan quote from Trump and I'm quoting him there's not a fucking thing we can do about it whenever it comes to Taiwan so he seems to think no we're not gonna fight for it even though he is the instigator of this political realignment or at least around China what does that look like? So, A, do you believe in Thucydides' trap with China? And B, is it going to be Taiwan? Or are there other conflagrations? Because it's usually the one you don't expect where it becomes something. Well, first, credit to Graham Allison, my old friend and, and colleague in my Harvard days. He was right about where we were going, and I was a bit slow in the uptake. I, I thought that maybe... Trump would be able to achieve some kind of great power deal with Russia and China. And that was what mm. Trump wanted to do. But it turned out that he wasn't able to do it, partly because there was just such congressional resistance to any kind of opening to Russia, and partly because the Chinese weren't interested. I mean, really not right. interested in whatever deal it was that he was trying to negotiate. And now we find ourselves in a very ironic situation that the Biden administration takes literally uh, the Trump policy that Trump himself regarded uh, uh, more uh, as a kind of uh, means to the end of the big deal. So there's much more literal commitment on issues like human rights, democracy in Hong Kong uh, than there was under Trump because Trump never believed in any of that stuff and just wanted to get reelected and do a big deal with Xi Jinping. Right. Now with Biden and, and Blinken uh, and Jake Sullivan, I think you have a very different situation that reminds me of past Democratic administrations going all the way back to Woodrow Wilson. You're elected with a, a very bold domestic agenda, but you end up getting sidetracked by a major war. Happened to Wilson, happened to Roosevelt, 
LBJ. happened to Truman in 1950. Yeah, LBJ. Yeah, all, all. Of course, they keep, <laughs> yeah. they keep drawing these parallels with Lyndon Johnson. I'm like, do you really want to go there? Is that the analogy you want to run with? <laughs> I mean, have they all forgotten how this ended? So I, I think there's a kind of a nightmare scenario, which is that uh, they took on this position for electoral reasons. The calculation, and I heard it made many times, in the run-up to the 2020 election was we've got to be tougher in China than Trump. We mustn't let him be the hawk. So we're going to be tougher on China. And when Biden tried to go in the other direction, they were kind of gagging him for some time until they drummed into his head, you must be tough on China. <laughs> now they own tough on China. And now the problem is that they're going to be tough uh, on Taiwan, on the South China Sea, on the Uyghurs, on Hong Kong, on defending the Australians. They're actually being far more, in fact, combative on all these issues than the Trump administration ever was. And that's where you get into trouble, because you start saying things and making commitments that at some point you may have to honor. The truth of the matter is, as everybody knows, and this was Trump's point when he was doing his famous Sharpie diagrams, which John Poulton spilled the beans about, we don't have a credible deterrent at this point. If the Chinese decide to invade Taiwan, we're not in a strong position. If we send two aircraft carrier groups, they might sink the carriers because their missiles can do that now. So we're in the worst possible situation. I think it's the UK in 1914 and in 1939. We've got this commitment, but it's just not that credible. And it's not going to be the Biden administration that spends a ton of money making it credible, because ultimately the priorities are domestic, not foreign policy priorities. So where does this lead us? I think it can lead us to a showdown over Taiwan next year. I think it's going to happen much sooner than Jim Stavridis thinks. I love that book. I'm mm -hmm. a great fan of Jim. But I said to him, the only thing I disagree with here is the time frame, because I think this will happen soon. Like Germany before 1914, the Chinese have at the one and the same time a hubristic sense that their time has come and a deep insecurity that it might mm. actually not, yes. not happen. Yes. Feelings of weakness were there in Germany before 1942. They really thought the Russians would ultimately have a steamroller that they couldn't uh, resist. And I think it's that feeling of insecurity that leads to strategic risk taking. The Chinese know the growth miracle is ending, the demographics suck, the debt is up the wazoo. They're far more pessimistic when you talk to them in private about China's future than they are when they're giving their wolf warrior diplomacy speeches. And that's the dangerous combination. So the Thucydides trap turned out to be right. The rising power definitely has uh, a higher probability of conflict with the incumbent power than of achieving some kind of not too bloody Cold War outcome. That, that I think, is, is right. We'll be doing well if we can keep this as a Cold War. The risk is that we end up with the hot war scenario. And then the thing that's really hard to predict is what, the, what does the US do? I mean, if there is showtime next year over Taiwan, what will Blinken do? Headline writers the world over are waiting to write Blinken Blinks. The name cries out for the headline. <laughs> and I have right. to say, yeah. when I look at the Biden administration and remember how many of them were in the Obama administration and how they handled Syria and how they handled Ukraine, I think they maybe do blink. But if you blink over Taiwan, it really is game over for American dominance in the Indo-Pacific region. And that will have a cascade of consequences 
It may not cost huge numbers of lives. Not fighting is definitely less costly in terms of life, but the strategic balance would would shift fundamentally at that point. So that's why I kind of played around recently in a piece for Bloomberg with the analogy with the Suez crisis, because then you're Britain in in the 50s and suddenly it's time up. And that that's that seems to me the more I think about it, like the plausible end game for American empire. I was just thinking the other day about Hainan Island and how that might go today. Uh, for I know we're out of time and we can go after this, but it, just so I, I don't want people to leave them hanging. It's when I think it was a U.S. spy plane crashed into Hainan Island in China. This was pre 9-11. It was like 2000. And there was a lot of tension over whether we were going to get our guys back and all that. And I was just thinking the other day, I'm like, man, I, that would go so different in yeah. the year 2020. But there we go. Sir, we really appreciate your time. Like we said, we're huge fans um, of your work. Been reading it um, ever since we got out of college. So not that long ago. Uh, but we appreciate you Did joining you make us. make me feel any older? In the- <laughs> <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm starting to look for gray hairs. Yeah. Your- it's like, am I really this old? Yeah, yeah thanks so no, much for joining us. Yeah. This I, has been I, a great I, conversation. Thanks very much for the work you're doing. It's, it's great to have these conversations. Uh, generational conflict is a reality, but maybe we've done a little bit to bridge the, gen- the generation gap, maybe just a bit. Yeah, thanks. Well, so. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the episode, guys. We really appreciate it. Go ahead and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. Check out our bookshop if you want to see Dr. Ferguson's book, his book recommendations, and more. We have a special one, which is in the show notes. And of course, everyone, check out our Substack. It comes out on Thursdays. You could sign up in the show notes as well, too. As always, a special thank you to the Lincoln Network for sponsoring this podcast. Really appreciate it.